Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Second Book of Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 4, and we'll be looking at the first eight verses. Back in the 1980s, when I was in college and didn't really have any goal in life, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was very, I was drawn, as it were, to the aim high commercials of the United States Air Force. And so I signed up and I entered the Air Force in October of 1981. I went through various schoolings in the Air Force, and finally they sent me to Alaska outside of Fairbanks. And actually in those days we were doing, we were spying on Russia from a distance. Now it's all different, but kind of the same. And so I was doing what I was supposed to be doing, and then on February 5th, 1984, I had a dream that I took as a call to the ministry. And so I got up and after realizing what had happened, I went to the base chaplain and I explained to him the dream. He thought that it was real. He confirmed the dream. But he said the Air Force doesn't let people out just because God has a call on your life. I was attending at the time Moose Creek Baptist Church, which was an off-base church because you can get better teaching uh, than the ecumenical on-base church. And so I presented myself to Pastor Benjamin Franklin Kimbrough, who was the pastor of the church, and uh, he said, well, let's try it out. And so he gave me opportunity to preach on several Sunday mornings and evenings and to teach some Bible studies. And it was him and his wife that said, I reminded them of Mordecai Ham, which was the preacher that led Billy Graham to the Lord. They were of the age that they actually knew Mordecai Ham personally. And both the base chaplain and Pastor Kimbrough when I talk to them about my call to the ministry, both of them actually pulled out 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 is what they did at that point, and they said, this is what you have to focus on. You need to study it. You need to know it. You need to memorize it, whatever situation you're in. If God has a preaching call on your life, this needs to be your marching orders, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. On May 1st, 1985, I was medically discharged from the Air Force, and I was thinking, okay, now God's going to move. 
Okay? And so I begin looking for what God had for me. And I started working at Seagate in Scotts Valley. And that's when I met my wife. And we got married and immediately moved to Colorado. And in Colorado, we went to Ambassador Baptist Church with Pastor David McElreath. Now, these names have stuck with me all of these decades because these people spoke into my life. And even though it was a two- or three-month mentorship, Pastor McElreath mentored me, and he gave me wisdom, and he talked about how... He was working, I think it was at Boeing or one of the large corporations, when God put a call on his life, and he didn't know what to do next, and so he kept working at Boeing until such time he was in the kind of the printing department, and the order came down for a large layoff, and he was supposed to print 2,000 pink slips and he looked at the stack, and there was one for him. And so he realized that God was moving now. He had to print his own firing document. And so through a series of events, he ended up in Colorado. We ended up in Colorado, Longmont, Colorado. And Pastor McElreath spent some time with me, and oddly enough, he said... You know, you really need to look at 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 and make that your marching orders because if you're going to be a preaching pastor, you need to be able to do these things. You need to be able to preach the word is the point of that. And so he also said that God's timing is inscrutable. We have no clue what God is going to do next. We can read the Bible and get a, get a sense. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God wins in the end. You know, that's a, you bet on that horse. But what is happening between now and the end, what is happening between now and the rapture or the second coming, uh, God's not clear about and he's not telling and he's managing, you know, billions of things every second in the world, making it go the way that he wants it to go. And we say, well, I don't think it's going the way God wants it to go, but God thinks it's going the way he wants it to go. God is the one who is choosing directions. And so Pastor McElreath said, wait, study, improve yourself, uh, walk as close to God as you can until he fulfills the calling. And when you think about a calling or a command that is on your life, there's two basic ways. There's one, it is, do it now, go now. That is the story of Jonah. God came to Jonah and said, go now, get, you know, get going today, right now, pack it up and go while there are others like mine where God gives a call back here, which is a view, a prophecy, if you will, of what will be filled here. And the distance between here and here is for God to make me ready, to make you ready 
for what is coming here. So sometimes a call is saying, this is where we're going, let's get started. And, and then boom, you're there. That took 21 years for me, okay? 21 years. Every church that I went to with my wife, I went to the pastor and I said, I have this call on my life. Some of the churches said, I don't care. We didn't go to those churches. Some churches said, I will work with you. We went to those churches from here to there to there until we ended up here. Now, in February of 2005, uh, we were living in San Jose. I was still working in the tech industry. My father had passed away, and my wife and I had made this agreement with my mother, who still lived in San Leandro, that we would spend time. We would try to do it every week where we would come up here or she would go down there and we would have a meal. We would talk, see how things are going. We might play a game, this sort of thing. We're doing our best to take care of my mother who was now alone. And so in February of 2005, Barbara Bergeron called and said that she will bring my mother down to San Jose and we will have a meal and we'll play a game and we'll just talk about life. And I said, okay, come on down, you know, and she did. And we started talking about things and we pulled out Racco. Racco is a game, old game. If you don't remember Racco, it's about putting cards in order is how you win the game of Racco. And we were playing Racco, and Barbara was talking to me and asking me questions and such. And I thought nothing of it. I thought she was just being friendly. And then three-quarters of the way through the game, she asked me, so would you be willing to be the pastor of San Lorenzo Baptist Church? And it's like, as I remember David McElreath saying 21 years ago that, you know, you, you kind of keep an eye out for this and when it hits, you got to take it because God opens a door and if you don't walk through it, then the door could close or it could be something that you miss. And so, totally unexpected, I was surprised and I said that I would. And so at that time, I was teaching at Silicon Valley College, and they had six-week segments, quarters, whatever, six-week classes. And I was halfway through one, so I had three more weeks to go, and so I told Barbara that I would um, have to finish out the semester, so I'd have to teach for three more weeks, then I could quit at a break and it wouldn't leave students hanging. And she said, that was acceptable. And so one night, uh, the group of teachers went down the street to Carl's Jr., which was the closest restaurant to Silicon Valley College. And while we were there, my phone rang. And it was the pulpit committee of San Lorenzo Baptist Church, and they wanted to uh, basically live broadcast the vote for me to be the pastor. And so the question was given, 
And then they voted and it was unanimous. And in fact, Ann Burnham said there were 12 people on the pulpit committee. There were 24 hands raised. So they wanted me. And so I accepted uh, and I shared it with the teachers that I would be leaving at the end of this segment. And through all of that, I became pastor of this church in March of 2005. And when I started, the passage that was on my mind was... 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And so when I look at that, I can look at this and I can look at my situation and I can look at the world and we definitely are getting rid of solid teaching. On, I received a, uh, I saw on Twitter this morning saying that if Paul was alive today, he would definitely be sending the church in America a letter. And you, you, you think, oh, that'd be nice. But no, I mean, you look at 1 Corinthians, not a very nice letter. You have to wonder what Paul would be saying to, you know, First and second and third and fourth and fifth Americas, he kept writing the letters and we're not doing anything because he's already written letters. And so this church has an opportunity. This church has an opportunity as we go into transition. There will be people that you do not know who will stand in this pulpit and will preach something or other and will ask you to like them. You can demand, you can demand and stamp your feet if you wish that whoever comes and stands in this pulpit preaches the word who will reprove, rebuke, and exhort. If they are ear ticklers, you have to say, no, thank you. If they are word preachers, you can say, let's see you again and see what's going on. And that's how you candidate. That's how people candidate and that's how churches respond and the denomination will be very involved in helping you, but you have to have the mindset that whoever is up here, they need to preach the word to you. You need to be able to hear what they're saying and then find it in here in some form or another, you need to find what is being said in the Word of God. And if it's not, if it's weird, if it is, you know, if they're preaching TikTok, that seems to be a thing today, you need to push them aside and say, I want somebody else. And if it takes six weeks or if it takes 16 weeks, you need to be 
discerning to get somebody in this pulpit who actually will preach the word. And, and, and how important is it, if you look in verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now, I've read many commentaries who put uh, verse 3 into false teachers in the church. But I think today, especially because there are millions of voices who want your attention, your false teachers can be uh, in Hollywood. Now, I know movies aren't made in Hollywood anymore, but it is a phrase that means the entertainment industry, those who are trying to entertain you so they can get advertising dollars. They are, it can be, and usually are today, false teachers. They want you to believe something that is sinful or believe something that is not godly. The government at all levels, and this is not an R or a D thing, this has been an issue with all governments in America for the last 50, 60, 70 years, that they want you to believe certain things so that you will respond with voting for them. And so... Back when I was a kid, the big joke was, how do you know a politician is lying? The answer was, his lips are moving. And today, we, we uh, you know, politicians tell us things and we just gobble it up. And COVID was just the, the cherry on top, if you will, of the government preaching at us, preaching what they are saying is true, but we need to look in the Bible and say, well, what is true? For if I am, if I want absolute truth, the only place I'm going to find it is the Scripture. If I want to know something that is true, true, true with a capital T, the only place I'm going to find it is the scripture. And when you look through the scripture, it talks about God being sovereign over all and God's will being done as it is on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, we pray that, that we want God's will, God's heavenly will to be done here. And that is something that we can pray for and we can look for what that means and what it means for families and what it means for jobs and what it means for churches and the various things. And when the, when the government comes and says, as I was told by a government employee, he was going to define what a church is. Okay, He said that to me. He said, I don't get to decide. The Bible doesn't get to decide. He, as a government employee, was going to define a church to me. That was mind-blowing to me, but that is the level of involvement that various levels from city, county, state, and federal want to get involved in your life and in your 
church. Churches are difficult for governments to swallow because we have a higher standard. I will judge everything I'm told is true through Scripture. And that's unacceptable to people who want to be in charge of you. That is unacceptable for people who want to have things go a certain way or who want to convince you to vote for them or give, give your taxes with a smile, you know, because it's so wonderful what they're doing. And so the, what we need to do is we need to be very discerning. We need to be very discriminating as to what sort of voices we let into our head. Okay, you got 2,000 channels on TV, you've got podcasts, you've got various social media videos and things. There's everybody who wants to talk to you and to get your eyes and your ears on them. And we need to be very discerning. I need to understand that if I'm watching this, you know, crime-solving show that it's, it's entertaining, but if it's trying to teach me any sort of moral view or view as to what's right and wrong, I need to view that through the lens of Scripture. I can be entertained. I just have to be discriminating. I have to be discerning as to what I'm seeing as to how much value it is given, as to how much value I let it put into my heart and if I watch a movie that was disturbing and I find that over a period of days or weeks I can't stop thinking about it or it's causing me to lose sleep, perhaps that type of movie needs to be crossed off my list of entertainment that I want if I'm going to lose sleep. It's because of what God is dealing with me. It is what God is telling me. It is because God is showing me something. That's something to, to lose sleep over if God's you know, convicting you of something, not something the world is being done. And so it ends with, uh, as for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry. And so the idea of not only you having a ministry, and every person who calls themselves a Christian has some sort of ministry. It may not be defined by a title or an office, but you have some sort of ministry, whether it is just your family or whether it is prayer or something of this nature. It can always be fun to, to title your ministry. You know, you look at how God is dealing with you and working with you, and then you can make a, you know, a business card that says prayer warrior or something like that. And, you know, it is your ministry. And people say, well, what do you do? You know, I could say, and I did back in the day, I said, well, I'm a computer programmer. To some people, when they said, so what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor in training. Because I had no idea what was coming, you know, 10 years into it or something like that. I had no idea. But I was, you know, going to school. I was building my library. I was writing 
fake sermons that I would never preach, those sorts of things, just to get into the practice and more and more as people would be interested in, in what do I do, I, I began to say, a pastor in training, you know, and they said, oh, well, when are you going to get your, you know, when are you going to be a pastor? And I have no idea. That's up to God, but I'm going to train until such time as March of 2005 comes along. So we don't do anything. If we call it a ministry, we don't do anything in our own power. One thing that David McElreath made clear is, don't force your calling. Don't get a picture in your mind of what a calling is or what God wants me to do, and then me figure it out, plan, you know, pay money, hire somebody to do it, you know, whatever it is, if God is, has a, a movement on your life, whether it be a vocation or a calling, and the word calling and vocation have the same root word, interestingly enough, and so God can call people to a vocation, we need to you don't go to the extreme of let go and let God, but you hold on very loosely as to what's happening so that when God moves, you can, you know, there's an open door, I'm diving through it because God has done this. And I, you know, I could have responded when they asked me to be pastor out of, out of fear and, ooh, I don't know, or it's been 21 years, but it was God opened the door and I drove, dove through it. And so Paul finishes this. And 6 through 8 is the finish of this thought. And he says that he's being poured out as a drink offering. And you say, what's a drink offering? Well, a drink offering is in Leviticus. There's all sorts of offerings in Leviticus. There's animals, there's grain, and there's drink. There was actually an offering where you would make a concoction that was described in Leviticus very exactly. You would burn grain and then you would pour this liquid over it and that was a drink offering. You were offering things to God in the form of a drink. Now, that is something that was practiced, that could be practiced under uh, Roman rule. Roman didn't like them to kill a lot of animals, but at Passover they did, but you could still burn grain and pour out drinks even when Paul was alive. And so it kind of became a Jewish idiom because a drink offering is so complete, you have a glass full of liquid, you pour it out, it's empty, it's done, okay? That it became something of Total exhaustion, it became something of, I've got nothing left. If I'm poured out as a drink offering, I've got nothing that is in me left. Now, many of this look at this and say, well, Paul is coming to the end of his life. Legend has it, we have no idea, that six or so months after he wrote Second Timothy, Nero came to power, Nero the nasty, nasty emperor, and he beheaded Paul, okay, in prison. And so Paul perhaps was shown that, that he is, ha, literally has nothing left because his life is coming to an end. But as a ministry idea, 
the idea of being totally exhausted is something that I'm going through. It has been a long haul to get where I'm going. And he talks about fighting the good fight and finishing the race. And one question that can be asked is, what is a good fight? Am I fighting a good fight? Are you fighting a good fight? There's two aspects of that. One is how you fight, how you do things for God. Do you do them, are you morally good? Are you functioning in righteousness as you work for God? The, that is opposite of the idea that the ends justifies the means. That I can, by hook or by crook, I can lie and cheat and do this as long as people get saved. Okay? Is some view of that, is some view of... Um, if when you talk about church growth views, the idea that you do anything to grow your church so that you can hit them with the gospel. So, but if you work that way, you never really get around to hitting them with the gospel. So we don't believe in do anything to get people saved. We believe in how we work, how we do things, how a church does stuff must be righteous, must be holy, must be good. You are fighting good, is what that would mean. The second is, what are you fighting for? Paul is fighting for the kingdom of God. His evidence of having a good goal is, he says in 7, I have kept the faith. So Paul looks at his life and he says, I've been through all this and I still believe. That is evidence to him that what he believes is true, that his goal is a good goal. Now, when you look at the race, the Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is a marathon. A marathon is, you know, 26 miles. It may be decades and decades is your life as a Christian, but there are many legs to the journey. There are many uh, perhaps it's a relay, and this is in many ways a relay. I am passing the baton on to somebody else that I don't know who, who is going to come, and the race of this church will continue, but my leg in this church will be over. But as I move away, will I have ministry? Absolutely. Will I be involved in a church? Absolutely, uh, I will be involved in a church from over there and not up here, okay? And that is how it will be, is that uh, God is still very real. God is very, God is obviously in charge of all of this. And so as I move on and as you call the next person in the relay race, I mean, it's been a long relay race for this church, called its first pastor in September of 1946, okay? And there has been a group of them, and I am one of the runners in the race for this church. And whatever comes along, whatever tries to derail me, I have to take it as the hand of God, okay? I went by ambulance last Tuesday, week ago Tuesday, to the hospital, and I have to ask the question, and I did, okay? If God is sovereign and true over everything, including this, 
then how does this fit into the theology of God and me? First question I have to ask is, am I being punished for my sin? Absolutely not. If I'm punished for my sin, Christ is ineffective. If Christ is ineffective, we're wasting our time. Okay? Christ died for all of my sins, all of your sins, past, present, future. He didn't miss a one. Okay? So, God did not look down at me and say, you need to pay for your sin. And go, eh. Okay? That didn't happen. Couldn't happen. How do I know that? Because I know the Bible. Because I preach the Word. Because I look at this and I go, can't be. I do not pay for my sin. Okay? So, why does suffering come? Well, if suffering comes because God doesn't care, that's also not in Scripture. Okay? God is very caring. God is infinitely caring for me and you. So if he's infinitely caring for me and you, there's only one thing that my hospital visit could be, and that is discipline. That I was not, and I am not, as Christ-like as I can be. And God in his infinite wisdom said what he needs to be more Christ-like is two days in the hospital. Okay? How does that work? I don't know. How, why is God? I don't know. I don't know how God's mind works. You don't know how God's minds work. You don't know his timing. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what God is going to choose for you to make you more Christ-like. Now, when I look at things that happened, I purposed in my heart that I was going to treat this as the hand of God upon me, okay, when I'm in the hospital. So, I'm in the waiting room. Lady next to me, kind of like, oh, she's not feeling good. I said, how can I pray for you? Okay, I'm in pain, she's in pain. I say, how can I pray for you? She then shared that she was a believer and that she didn't know why this was happening and I was able to share some theology and pray for her. I asked many of the nurses how I could pray for them. Some were not interested. Some were very interested. So, I don't know. Maybe God did this to me so I could pray for a lady in the waiting room. I don't know. I don't know all that God was doing, but I do know this one absolute fact. It was good. It was godly. It was God's compassion and His love upon me to get me into the hospital and to get me out. Okay? How it works, I don't know. But I have to match everything I'm doing with the Word of God. And the Word of God is clear that it is that way. Now, I don't see it. And I say that's right because we walk by faith, not by sight. I have to believe things are a certain way, whether I know for a fact they are or not. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I thank you for your hand upon this church and upon me. I thank you for your love and your grace. And even though I don't say, 
oh, I understand how this works or how that works or anything like that. No way do I understand anything about how you're working. But I know that you are working and everything I go through is to your glory and for my sanctification. I pray your blessing upon this church and the days ahead, and I ask your blessing upon the meal that is to come. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.